Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center. This is episode 119, Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, The Tools. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, and other folks about their part in America's space exploration program. And today we're going to talk about a typically NASA sort of thing, how we develop unique tools to complete the on-orbit repair of an amazing space particle detector which is hot on the trail of dark matter and dark energy. Yeah, it's what we do. In 1994, Nobel laureate Professor Samuel Ting from MIT proposed the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. You'll hear us call it the AMS. He had in mind a particle physics detector to be deployed on the International Space Station, which itself wasn't even flying yet, and which would gather information about cosmic particles traveling through space. He was searching for antimatter and dark matter and keys to the origins of the universe. It was delivered to the International Space Station on the next-to-last space shuttle mission in May of 2011, and it's been gathering and gathering more than 146 billion cosmic ray events, give or take. Check out our podcast episode 117 with Space Station Assistant Program Scientist Brandon Riddell for more on the science of the AMS. Well, the AMS today is ready for some upgrades to extend its life. That means spacewalks by station astronauts. The thing is, AMS was not designed to be repaired on orbit or have its parts replaced in space, as was the case for another iconic piece of NASA science hardware, the Hubble Space Telescope. And those on-orbit upgrades and repairs worked out really well. So the spacewalk experts at the Johnson Space Center here in Houston tagged in some colleagues at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, the home of Hubble, to figure out how to do this job. In the process of the figuring out, they realized they didn't have the tools they needed for all the work. No one had them. They didn't exist. So they created them. And that's our story today. I got a chance to talk with three of the engineers involved, Justin Cassidy from Goddard and Heather Bergman and Drew Hood from Johnson, about the development and fabrication and testing of more than 20 brand new tools to allow spacewalking astronauts to keep AMS in business for as long as the station keeps flying. Okay then, here we go. From the one of these things does not belong with the other department is, is in this case me because I am not a spacewalk engineer or an engineer of any kind, frankly, and I don't play one on television, and I didn't even stay in a special hotel chain last night. But I really get turned on by stories about how machines work. So I'm really excited to get to talk to all of you today. Heather Bergman and Drew Hood work here at NASA's Johnson Space Center in the, and why do we do this to ourselves, in the EVA and Advanced Exploration Tools Office, which is a part of the Tools, Equipment, and Habitability Systems branch of the Crew and Thermal Systems Division. Good for <laughs> you guys. 
And Justin Cassidy works in the Satellite Servicing Project Division at Goddard Space Flight Center, and he's been involved in planning and execution of most of the Hubble Space Telescope repair missions. So by way of introduction, I wanted to ask uh, if each of you would just tell me a little about yourself, about your own background, how you got to NASA, uh, maybe some of what you've been working on before, and how you got involved in the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer Spacewalk Project. Heather? I, um, I'm Heather Bergman. Uh, for the past four years, I've been the JSC EVA Tools Project Manager for the AMS Repair Tools. Uh, I studied mechanical engineering at the University of Toledo in Ohio. Uh, I started co-oping in the car industry. I always wanted to design sports cars. Mm. Um, and after spending a semester doing that, I realized that world was too political for me. So oddly, I came to work for the government. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, I worked at uh, Glenn Research Center, NASA Glenn Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio. And after uh, graduating, I worked there for a year before I moved down here, I started working shuttle repair tools, uh, return to flight for STS-114, oh. and did that through the end of the space shuttle program, and then moved over to ISS tools, so International Space Station, anything that goes out the door, um, any of our new builds comes through our office, so worked that for a while, so when AMS showed up, um, we were the office that was what went to first, yeah. I guess. and. We've been working AMS since the beginning, since they decided that they needed to go outside and do do the repair on a space. Did you walk. say four years you've been working on four this? Four years for AMS. My goodness. We'll find out why here in a minute. Yes. Drew Hood, tell me yeah, about Yeah, my name is Drew Hood. Uh, I studied mechanical engineering at Purdue University, and I honestly had uh, no idea what even the last A in NASA stood for. <laughs> I was interested in biomedical engineering. So um, I was went to Purdue, and as a freshman, I got introduced to the co-op program, as Heather mentioned earlier, where you go to school semester, work a semester. Right. So um, I was focused on trying to land a job in the Midwest with a biomedical company. And thankfully, my dad said, hey, why don't you interview with NASA as well, just to kind of round out your interview session? And so thankfully, I did that. And um, five years and six co-op tours later, I landed a full-time job here at NASA. Yeah. And so I came into the tools group that I currently work in today and really, really enjoy that work. So I've worked on a lot of different projects from uh, NEMO, which is a um, underwater exploration analog off the coast of Florida, where astronauts go down and do some training, uh, building hardware for that, to certifying a GoPro camera for the crew to take out and take good video and for uh, for the International Space Station. But the last, Heather said that the last four of my 10 years here at NASA as a full-time employee have been focused on AMS. My goodness. Justin Cassidy, you've been involved in spacewalking for longer than that. It certainly has, Pat. So uh, I'm Justin Cassidy. Um, I've been with uh, NASA for over, over 30 years, so I want to age myself there. Um, like, uh, I'm an engineer as well, mechanical engineer. I went to uh, school at, uh, in Washington, D.C., a Catholic university, and that is just down the street from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, just across the line. Um, so it was, uh, it was always my desire to, to, to go up the street, if you would, and uh, find employment at, at NASA Goddard, and I did. And I worked uh, a couple of early uh, development programs at NASA. I started working on this thing um, that people were kind of getting together called Space Station. Mm -hmm. So I worked really, really early days of uh, pre-planning with what our contribution was to that. I worked another program called the Flight Telerobotic Servicer, which was basically putting a robotic arm in the shuttle cargo bay and um, showing what you could do robotics-wise. So I do have a tie to robotics. Um, I had a great opportunity back in 1994 to work on this program called Hubble Space Telescope after 
Um, they had discovered that there was an issue with the, with the mirror on Hubble right. and, and conducting that, that servicing SM1 repair. Um, it definitely was something that I was, I had the availability to get a part of that team. And so I worked uh, Hubble, uh, four out of five servicing missions for Hubble. Um, much in a systems role supporting that project, um, also supporting the EVA folks developing critical tools, I would say, for servicing Hubble. Um, basically, Hubble was meant to be a service visited by astronauts and upgraded. Um, so we did that over a number of years, and the beauty about having uh, Hubble Space Telescope and its ability to be upgraded was is that as technologies mature, those upgraded components could be replaced right. over the years. So better instruments, better cameras, better tape recorders. Or replacements uh, for things that or, broke. Or replacements for things that failed uh, before they were expected to, uh, to last. Um, so that became a very great opportunity for myself. The last servicing mission, SM4, was very unique in that we went beyond the what they call ORU box level change out. We actually were having astronauts open up instruments and do technician level work, replacing a board about the size of eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And that was mm -hmm. totally something new um, that helped us what we're going into. You've said it was four years ago that somebody said, oh, you, come talk about the, the AMS. At, at the point that this first presented itself, what was the problem? What, what was going on with AMS that spacewalks were needed for it? Well, they, uh, they started out having some, some spikes on their pumps. So the, the pumps are, are, they move cooling fluid through AMS. So they keep things cool, they're supposed to be cool. They keep things warm, they're supposed to be warm. And it just moves things around. Think of it as the air conditioning. And it happens system. both directions because the thing is mounted on the outside of the International Space Station. So it's going through times where there's sun and times when they're in dark. So it's got to maintain a steady level of temperature. Correct. So it was starting possible. to have trouble maintaining those temperatures. So they wanted to go out and um, and fix that. So they started with putting a little a little extra blanket up near those some, some sections to keep it a little warmer in there and that didn't quite do everything so they started to look more and more into what needed to be done and they decided that the pumps that moved that fluid throughout AMS needed to be replaced and AMS was not designed to be serviced like Hubble was it was right. designed to go up for maybe three years or so get some science and then be done well nine years later it's getting such amazing science that they want to keep going so even though it's well past its life They've asked us to go do a spacewalk and fix something that was not meant to be fixed. Well, and it's still got more to do because the the, the scientists behind it are, are still not publishing their their final findings yet. So they they still want to gather more more data. So I guess this was not just uh, just another assignment. No. Uh, at, at no. The time for, for me, got. definitely not. Um, I was as you as I said earlier. I've only been here ten years full time, and four of that have been worked on AMS. So I was brought in as a pretty green engineer. I had um, had a lot of experience in like the development world doing kind of quick and dirty development projects, but not the rigors of a full flight project. So I was brought in and kind of shadowed Heather here and um, have grown over the past four years, which has been awesome. It would seem to me, not knowing any of this that, that you guys do, that you have two problems, and it's the one that we've mentioned, the fact that this was not designed to be worked on in this way in space. And it's also not here for you to, to play with, right? I mean, it's 250 miles up and moving pretty fast. Yeah. What do you do in a situation like that? How do you, how do you start to approach this problem? Yeah, so we just finished a series of spacewalks replacing something that was meant to be replaced on space station. We just re replaced the BCDUs, I mean, a battery 
something associated discharge, with batteries. Discharge battery unit. Yes. So um, these weren't meant to do that. So you you go in and we've looked at we looked at all of the drawings and all the pictures. We looked at hundreds of pictures and drawings to try to figure out the best way to get inside of AMS. AMS has a nice hard shield on the outside of it to protect anybody from getting into these things. You don't want any Intrusions. micrometeoroids to, to puncture anything that is important. So it's it's shielded. So we had to go find a way to get inside. And you look at all of these photos and videos and, and drawings to try to figure out the best way to get inside and talk to all the people who made it. So Pat, there's a very large lesson learned um, going back to, uh, which I'll talk about often, is the Hubble, yeah. Hubble-based uh, uh, servicing, basically. And, and we, uh, the division I report to at, uh, at Goddard Space Flight Center um, has invested significant amount of efforts to work through all the Hubble servicing missions for success. And we are now also relying on proving that you could do the same thing as an astronaut with a robot. So we, oh. have, we have put some uh, experiments up onto space station um, with specialized robotic tools for, for performing, performing servicing repair to show that yes, a robot and an astronaut can do it. Maybe one is better than the other, but it's certainly the capability is there. And we have been working a lot with satellite uh, operators and vendors creating satellites, basically saying that the most important thing you could do is take photographs of your hardware. That is of utmost importance. So when you get there, there is no surprise or less surprise when you need to do the work on that particular repair. And when you think at home, you measure twice and cut once, right? That's what I've heard. Well, I hope we <laughs> measured twice before we launched AMS because there's no more measuring to be done. Right. Yeah, and one of the best things that we were able to do was to use spare parts and build some mock-ups. So we actually decided to build what we of what we had around. We were able to piece part together. Uh, I think they call it Woody. <laughs> it's a it's a half wooden half metal mock up over in Building Nine that but we can. But its parents use. love it just the same. Yeah, they do. They do. <laughs> um, so it's we're able to train some astronauts on it, and we were able to actually look at it to develop some of our tools. We went over as engineers at the beginning and said, hey. What, what do we think we can use to get into some of this work site and do some of this challenging stuff? So while we may not have the real one here, we had there were some spare parts, and we were able to cr create a um, one that we could play with. And just to make sure I understand, because Justin, you mentioned the possibility of, of, robotic, of robots being able to make repairs. Is that being used in this case? Certainly Is, not in this case. Okay. It's just a reference for yeah. similarity between repairs. No matter what you're trying to work on, mm -hmm. photo documentation is certainly a very large precedence that we'd like to put out there that is very, very important, as well as drawings and CAD models and having spare parts are, are really critical and essential for reducing your risk for any potential issue you would have during a repair. And it sounds like you guys had lots of cooperation from the AMS people who provided you the the tools or the toys to, in order to, to figure out how to do the repair that had to be done. Absolutely. We've gone and since we don't have the actual hardware here to go measure, we've looked at all the paperwork they put together over the years that they were building it and looked at any measurement they made and any picture they took and anything we can use in there to make sure that our hardware is going to fit properly when it gets up there. We've done everything we can to look at all that paperwork to make sure it happens. How long were you working at this before you started to come to the realization that you didn't have all the hardware that you needed for this, that it didn't exist? That there were things that you that you wanted to get at that you didn't have tools for, or so, didn't have tools so, in space for? Pat, let me ask um, um, Heather. Yeah. During the course, since we've been doing this so long, during the course, the actual worksite changed. Yes, it Three did. Three times at least. Yeah. for where our target was where we were going to 
adapt into the system in order to create this life extension for, for AMS. Now, the AMS didn't move. No, but where we were going to repair it moved. So we, there are a couple of cooling loops, okay. and we're going to repair one of them. So we started off on the port side of AMS, and that was a very challenging work site. And as we were working with the AMS project office and their collaboration, um, they were able to come up with some other places that we could go in and look. So after we had thought about how do we get into this place and spend some time looking at that, we completely changed our work site to the starboard side of AMS, which is a As little- your access point? Mm -hmm. It was a little more open, still not open from what we would normally want to have, but much more open than the previous area. So yeah, we've, we've moved around a couple of times and changed the general repair scenario. Is there any thought given to, well, let's just pick it up off the truss and hold Absolutely. it out here so that we could get at it. Yeah, we thought about that as well. We, we can't fly a new one anymore because wow. we don't have the capabilities of shuttle to fly something that large, but everything was on the table. Maybe we need to pick it up and hold it for a while while we give the crew good access. Yeah. We thought Inst about it all. Install uh, foot, foot restraints so that they could go up to it and get at any side of it. Yeah, we thought about it. But we're not going to do that no. this time. I mean, one thing was, was very for certain that they approached us, could we actually come up with methodologies for getting to the worksite, to open the worksite, perform the worksite? We couldn't come back with, oh no, we can't do it. So we had to find a solution. Mm -hmm. there, there was no no in this, this no, condition. No we had to find a way, answer. and by the end we all found a very great and way I think to as tool engineers, kind of our, our job is to not say no. They come to us when things become really difficult and say, okay, you, can you make a tool to do this? And that's one of my favorite things is being able sure. to create a tool to do the impossible. If it was easy, they'd ask me. <laughs> yeah. I guess I would say one of the robots we are using on this mission, though, is the robotic arm. So the robotic sure. arm, you mentioned foot restraints. Mm -hmm. So that is a big key component to get to this work site because we need to be able to position people in the right spot because this work site was never meant to be worked on. So there aren't the convenient handrails and all the places that you normally find on station. Like on station, the handrails are numbered. Like there's an they have a number on them and you can actually walk down the station and they plan out exactly where they're going to put their hands right on this one yeah one and one handrail at a time one handrail at a time yes and so we didn't have that on the side of ams we're working and so we had to use the robotic arm and the foot restraint to get the crew in the spots where they can actually do the tasks that are needed what what kind of things were you finding that you would that made you say we don't have the tool to do this give, give, can you give me an example of what 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 kind of things were you encountering well, Drew was just talking about handrails being all yeah. over station. Without gravity to hold you in place, you've got you need something to grab onto. Well, right. there's no handrails, so uh, Drew and I worked on the team that built three new handrails to attach to things that are not meant to have handrails attached to them. So after Justin's team removed some, um, some uh, the debris shield to get us access into the cavity, we tried to look at any little feature that we could grab onto to put a handrail on. And when you put a handrail on, it's not just something that needs to take all five or 10 pounds. It's 125 pounds minimum. So it's you need to find some beefy structure, which may or may not be there. So you have to get creative with how you're gonna grab onto things. Well, I mean, that's gotta take the weight, not only of the astronaut, but the suit that the astronaut is wearing, plus any other hardware they may have with them, right? That's the, the loads that they put into it. Well, the, with the, with, they don't weigh anything in space. Well, they do have some mass, mass. Thank you. but they uh, they move around. And so generally we say that 125 pounds is a, is a kick load. So if, if they kind of push off of something or, or bump into or it, 125 pounds is, is kind of the, where we aim for for most of our hardware. Mm -hmm. Handrails tend to go a little higher, especially if the crew is going to be their safety on them. But so, Pat, without yeah. these crew aids uh, that Heather and Drew have been talking about, it would be very difficult for the crew member to do their work at the work site, unrestrained. 
without being in a foot restraint. So it gives them a lot more control using the tools that we have created for them in order to conduct the repair. Uh, in general, without talking about it, I get maybe not one particular tool, but, but what kind of process do you have to go through? I'm, I am assuming, just because I've been around here for a while, that it's going to be really detailed and every step of the way has got to be documented and there are a thousand people you never heard of who are here to tell you how you should change what you, what you wanted to do. That it's a really difficult process to get through, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, on Give our side, so we, some of the things we're looking at, we're, so we're doing plumbing. We're, we're replacing uh, the pumps and fixing the air conditioning system. So there are tools out there that can be used to cut into stainless steel lines and to swage back onto those lines and do these things. They're just not friendly for an astronaut in a spacesuit. So where we started with a lot of our tools is, is there an easy tool that I can go buy at the store that might do this job? And even if I can't buy something that'll do this job, can I, can I get an idea of what, the industry's already gone off and found the best widget to do this. Uh -huh. Can I take that widget and redesign it so that it can be used in a spacesuit? Did you find any you could buy? Uh, we found ones that we could use some of <laughs> but even if you can use some of we have some bolt cutters that are half of them are something that we were able to buy but the other half you need to put nice friendly handles on them for the crew to use and just would have been easier most <laughs> tools that you buy in a store don't have a tether point on them what <laughs> so we want to make sure none of that hardware floats away if the crew member lets go of it so at a bare minimum we almost always have to add a tether point mm -hmm. in in working through that process uh, does it strikes me that that's something that sounds like it's got all sorts of opportunities for you to be frustrated in, tr in trying to get this to work. I mean, because you're, you're, you're trying to figure out something really difficult, and then you've got well, you know, not difficult? You're shaking no, your head. No, it is difficult. No. I would say the frustration <laughs> is usually on the back end trying to get all the paperwork in order. Like, solving the problem up front is the fun, exciting part. Like, that's that's the blast. And then checking all the boxes, dotting your T's, crossing all your I's. Oh, other way around. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what I meant. Um, <laughs> that's, that, see, that's the challenging part, the paperwork. Already. Uh, it occurs to me to ask that in the, in the course of doing this, that it might be helpful for you to not only be working with all the other engineers that you know who have developed tools uh, for other missions, but to talk to astronauts who have used the actual tools in actual space to, to do this stuff. Did, did you have a lot of access, a lot of help from the astronaut office in, in working through this stuff? Uh, absolutely. This, especially with this, not with every EVA, we don't necessarily have a lot of access to the astronauts, but with this one in particular, we knew from the beginning that this was going to be a challenging set of EVAs, and we were going to need um, to design the tools to be used by probably a more particular crew than usual. A lot of our hardware is designed to be built by any crew member on any day, and the crew members are all very capable of using them. But this was such a difficult repair idea that we thought it was going to be intricate and difficult enough that we were probably gonna have to have somebody that trained on it more like a, on a Hubble mission where they'd seen the hardware and played with the hardware in the work site on more than one occasion because it was just gonna be too much to do based on reading through the procedures and too much to pick up in just just real quick. We, we hear astronauts talk about how they receive skills training mm -hmm. when they're getting ready for an International Space Station mission because they don't know what spacewalk they're gonna do if any, uh, but they know how to do 
the skills things. But what I understand you saying is that this was different. There was a very specific set of skills that were going to be needed here that weren't needed in other for other tasks and other other space blocks. Yeah, well, we tried to go find tools from industry to be able to use. We, we weren't successful in most cases, so yeah. most things had to be built from the ground up, and there are nuances of how you use them. There are very particular things that you have to know to do step A before you do B, and it took a lot of training for the crew that's up there right now to be able to use those I think anybody could use them, but to try and use them efficiently so that we can get through a very long series of EVAs in as short a time as possible, it took them a lot of time to, to get used to the, using the hardware. Mm -hmm. Justin, you look like you were about to sit, join in. Uh, Heather's words were, were, of course, fantastic, spot on. Um, <laughs> she I, seems to agree. I think so. I think so. Um, it is very, the, requ uh, the requirement for the training uh, for the crew members that were going uh, brought to us to, to evaluate and test our tools before the final flight crew was selected, um, they were definitely very seasoned veterans of astronauts, and and they've used tools before, and they know how to use them. Generic skill training. Um, some of some of the tools that we use during the repair are pretty generic tools. They're screwdrivers. They're they're pretty easy to operate. Right. But when you combine that with all the worksite factors that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm having a specialized knowledge of how that tool works, what to go, what to count, how hard to turn, where your body position really did require the specialized training at the MBL and our Arcus facilities in order to accommodate and create that comfort level for them to work proficiently, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Uh, in, in listening to a previous podcast where we talked with the folks who helped develop the, the timelines for, for these repairs, I got the sense that in the process of working all of this out, you found out some things about the spacewalking suits that astronauts use on the International Space Station that maybe, I don't know if it was that you didn't know before or just that, that worked into what you were doing here. Um, what, tell me about what, what those things were. Oh, I felt no that this cemented what we knew about the suit. I mean, it's an it's it's a spacecraft all in itself. It's an amazing piece of hardware, but it, it has its limitations. There are reach limitations that for how far you can go into something. It's very bulky and large, and we're going into a small cavity. So there are definitely some reach limitations. And I don't know that those were surprising to us, but I feel like I'm I'm more surprised that how much we're able to do, not that we're limited but there are things that we can do that I'm almost surprised that we can do because normally we've would have I would have thought we couldn't get into an area like this. But you found that in fact you can. How big an area are we talking about uh, that you mentioned? I mean, how how big a workspace inside the AMS are these astronauts going to be dealing with? Not, I don't mean an exact number, but I, I think it's about 18 inches deep. Yeah, it's the shape of Nevada. So if you think of the state of Nevada, <laughs> I'm that's sorry, what, what it's the shape of yeah, Nevada. Yeah, it looks like the state of Nevada. Uh -huh. it's, that's the shape of it. Okay. And I'd say it's probably and it's 18 inches deep. 18 inches deep. Drew is doing hand gestures. I'm doing hand gestures. Listening. <laughs> what do you think? Three, you maybe that. four feet tall and three feet wide. Something maybe a little like large that. on the wide. But maybe, maybe a little the larger. Length but yeah. of the VSB tray. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, climbing but, down in that cavity when you're in a giant spacesuit. And yeah. it could be dark. Yeah. But well, it will be for at least part of it. Are they going to bring right. lights? They're, they will be bringing yeah. lights. But they've also got a tool belt. Their their workstation is on the front of them, so that right. makes means when you're working at home, you just you belly right up to the, the workspace. They can't necessarily do that because they've got their work belt that's in the way, and so that, that 
leaves them just a little farther out of the work site. And it so. covers up at least part of the reach of their own arms. Mm -hmm. So keeping keeping them from getting that much further inside to the to the workspace. Yeah, Luca's long arms will come in handy. Will help. <laughs> I mean, we had certain new tools that we provided, but the, we also leveraged on building tool stackups of existing tools that already were in the arsenal of, of the EVA community. So that enabled us to have a further reach for where they actually can touch. Give me an example. Uh, uh, we would use a bit that's six inches long and that was certainly not gonna make the reach so we put a socket extension on there and now you've got an 18 inch reach. So not essentially different than the, the ratchet set I have at home. That's correct. But more expensive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but just common sense kind of, of, of ways to make existing tools do the work that you need them to do, which is what you guys do all the time anyway, right? Yeah. And starting at the beginning, you asked about kind of like the process we had. So yeah. we use these facilities and a lot of 3D printed concepts. So we would take a go print up an idea of just volumetrically, here's what we think we want to use. Now get a crew member into a facility and see if he can reach in there and envision himself being in a spacesuit and saying, oh yeah, I think I can do this task or, oh wait, how I do that? I actually bump up against this. I don't think this tool is going to work in this form factor. And so we went through a lot of iterations of just dummy, solid 3D printed shapes to progress to then prototypes that were semi-functional and then flight-like engineering development units. And that spanned multiple a year, year and a half on some of the tools because of their complexities. We want to make sure we got it right at the end and we spent a lot of time up front. Is 3D printing things faster and less expensive than developing? Very less expensive. So I can, I can 3D print a widget just the size of like a water bottle for about 35 to 40 cents of material. Now, granted, there's electricity costs and the cost of the unit. But I'll cover the electricity yeah, for you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but assuming you've already bought your 3D, you already have the 3D we printer. We have the yep. You can you can knock out uh, overnight. I'll, we yeah. start it when I leave, and it'll be there in the morning when I get back. It literally sits on my desk in mm -hmm. the office. So, Drew, you made reference to to some facilities that you use. Tell me about the different uh, the different stuff here, the the places where astronauts train for spacewalks that you used in in the process of developing these tools. Yeah, so one of those is uh, called Argos. stands for the Active Response Gravity Offload System. That's a little bit of a mouthful, but um, uh, which is why we use acronyms. By yeah, the way. <laughs> Argos. So it is a system that in, incorporates a crane, um, a crane that basically you attach it to a crew member and say you weigh 200 pounds and you want to make it feel like you weigh 100. This crane will offload 100 pounds, and it sits there and senses with a load cell. If you jump, it realizes, oh, wow, I'm only offloading 80 pounds. Now I better pick the guy up. So it lifts you up. And then as you start to fall, it says, oh, man, this guy's weighing 120 pounds. I better let him down. And it does this real time very rapidly. And wow. so and it also moves in the horizontal plane, the XY direction. And it has a, a little sensor that measures the angle of that cable that you're being suspended from. So you can walk around and jump in parabolas just like you're in any gravity environment, whether that's microgravity or lunar gravity or Martian gravity. We can simulate all of those in a mechanical crane-like system. You're still attached to this crane so you can't fly, but you can it, float. Float, ish. yep. It doesn't, it doesn't do your appendages very well, so like your arm still feels like you're in 1G. Your legs still feel like you're in 1G, so we have to do some things to help with those artifacts, but we actually lay the mock-up down on its back, and the crew member can actually fly over in a spacesuit 
and be floating around like he would be in microgravity. And and in the, in this one G environment, it sounds like they're floating they're, above it. They're, they're floating flo above it, and he's horizontal, and he can work down in the cavity. And mm -hmm. we actually have a foot restraint, like I mentioned earlier, that we can roll in. It's like on a little crane arm, and it it's not not robotic. We can't position it with like a robot, but we can roll it around and lock it in place, yeah. and we can do the best job we can to simulate where he would actually be at in real life on the space station. And the second place is the NBL, the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. So that one was where we have a full-size mock-up of the International Space Station right. submerged underwater. And so that mock-up is a little little bit um, simplified because it's made out of stainless steel and some plastic. We don't have all the, all the intricate details on that mock-up because it has to live in the water environment, right. but it gives them another layer of training. So we use both of those in tandem. And does that mean that you, when you're developing tools, you have to develop them not only or some version of it ultimately will have to be able to work where there's no oxygen, but the training method has to be able to work underwater. It has to be able to get wet. It does, okay. and we do some work. The, the biggest thing there is to actually make it feel neutrally buoyant. So sometimes we have to swap things out so they don't float or sink. So like if I take the, the my balsa wood screwdriver. Exactly. Actually, there's some pretty great plastics though that you yeah. can like say if you just had a simple knob that it's not going to take a bunch of load. I'm going to use aluminum for my flight unit, but aluminum sinks really well in water. So I can just swap it out for a plastic that's neutrally buoyant. So I'll make some changes and, and try to make that tool float. Well, be neutrally buoyant as close as possible because you don't want that uh, a boat anchor. That's not positive no, training. So that it, it, for the astronaut who's training, it feels like it would feel when they were, were on orbit. And that can be challenging when you get heavier hardware that is required to be tough enough when you get handrails and some of our other hardware that it really needs to be able to take load. And plastics don't tend to do that very well. So yeah. sometimes we'll do what Drew calls arts and crafts where we'll try to attach little plastic or foam to areas that they don't have to touch to, that'll help make it a little lighter so that it'll float a little more. Just to, again, get weight out of it in other ways that are not, yep. that, that don't impact its use. Yeah. And then well, every once in a while we take too much weight off and it floats to the surface away. and we have to pull it out of the pool skimmer. Mm -hmm. but <laughs> or sometimes we'll actually build a whole set tool like I mentioned 3d printing we'll 3d print a volumetric one that they can take out in a bag and they can go through the tasks of tethering it and handing it off to each other and getting set up in the work site and then we do what's called the magic swap a <laughs> support diver comes up and gives them the heavy one and takes away the lightweight one and they do their task and then the diver comes back and gives them the lightweight one non-functional one and they can proceed but with stowing it, it again and so we do that a lot in training as well hundred years ago I used to dive at the NBL running cameras and we would watch that happen all the time where you know they would take out a plastic thing and practice maneuvering it around and getting it where they needed to be and then a diver would come up take it away and give them a machine that would allow them to actually turn a bolt in in, in a thing yeah and the great thing now we can just 3d print them and so they're yeah. they're they're pretty cheap now and I just start them before I go home and they're ready to go the next morning and if they break I print another one um, let's get to some some examples of, of tools. I think they, they said there were 20 something new, brand new tools, and I don't know that you need to tell me all 20, but, but give me some examples of, of these brand new tools that are or are about to be on board the International Space Station so that these astronauts will have them to use to uh, keep AMS running well. I'm gonna start, Justin. Um, so the tools that, uh, that we, um altered from as a Hubble tool um, are specialized in that they our task that um, that JSE has has asked us to participate for for this repair was to help take apart things 
take apart things that are actually fun and easy. It's putting them back together. We're actually even better putting things back together. Um, the tools are not necessarily um, specialized in what they need to do, basically, is to remove a screw and allow you to then remove a cover. It's, it's how we remove it and how we control that screw that potentially could become loose. And this screw has a washer as well. So we want to minimize um, losing that screw and washer in the space environment because it could be detrimental to ISS. If one gets away, that is acceptable, but our going in plan is we want to capture all hardware, control it, and put it away. I mean, in those cases, don't you need it to put the thing back together again, too? We have a very fortunate <laughs> path forward that yeah. they are not required to put this cover back Ooh, on. Neat. We are being uh, closing out that worksite with it with a tent, basically okay. an MLI tent. I don't want to distract. Go ahead. You're talking about developing the tool. So yeah, so developing the tool. Um, basically, these these are screws. They're called socketed cap screws. They're number ten in size. Uh, they're about it, uh, an inch long and thread, and um, they are okay and easy to remove. Uh, but again, what we bring from our, our investment in, in working with Hubble and, and its repair and controlling um, foreign object debris, uh, screws and washes becoming loose because Hubble was an optical instrument while astronauts were working inside of Hubble, you didn't want one of these washers or screws getting in the optical path, hence compromising right. the, the science. Um, so we're going in with the same kind of plan as we want to control these screws. So we have tools that we have brought and provide um, to the astronauts for releasing screws and capturing them and putting them away in an appropriate way that saves them from becoming thawed. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, give me another example. Give me another, another new tool. So one of my, my favorites is the, the new zip tie cutter. Uh, we, J Justin was talking about not wanting uh, foreign object debris FOD floating around. You don't want to let anything get loose. You don't want it to, uh, space station's moving 17,500 miles an hour. If that comes back around and hits you, that's, that's going to sting. So <laughs> um, even something like a plastic zip tie is not something we want to let go. So we, there are a lot of zip ties. They, they bundled all this up real nice before they launched it, and now we need to go break into all of it. So we need yeah. to pull all those out. So you could use scissors or any number of EVA tools that we I'm have just now. I was thinking that doesn't sound like a, it would be too complicated. Yeah, a tool. you could, but they're they're really tight, and so it's cause sometimes it's hard to get the scissors in there. And again, we're we're 18 inches down in there, and so you can't necessarily get in there. So this tool. Um, we actually work with a, a group called MicroG Next here, where they go out and um, they present challenges to the college students um, in, in the country and say, hey, we've got a problem. We'd like to see, get your take on this problem. And so they, they bring forward proposals and they get to design their tools and bring them out here and, and test them in the NBL. And our group um, reads those proposals and helps those students out a lot. And one of them, the proposals, uh, maybe I think it was only last year, was a zip tie cutter. And uh, one of the teams brought that forward, and we, we took it over to show one of the astronauts, and he was like, oh, this thing's amazing. We need yeah. to fly this. Uh, we and need what? We need to fly this. This yeah. needs to be to on AMS. Yeah. It, it needs to happen. And we were like, I, uh, you mean AMS, the, the hardware we're delivering here in just a few months, that AMS? Yeah, that, that one. Uh -huh. So um, our team took what the students had done, and we, we modified that tool to, to be more flight, to follow the flight requirements that we have to make sure it was going to meet the load requirements and all the safety requirements. But we modified that. Um, and so that'll be flying here shortly. So it cuts the zip tie. You, there's a little tiny foot on it that'll slide underneath a zip tie, almost regardless of how tight it is. And then you push a button, and it'll cut the zip tie. But it'll also, when you cut it, it a little foot comes down and grabs the zip tie and holds onto it. And then you can move the cutter over into the trash can and or their little trash bag. And when you hit a different button, it'll let the it'll zip release. tie loose and release it into the trash. So it's holding onto it so that nothing floats away. Yep. Yeah. Another big concern is these tight zip ties are wrapped around a ribbon cable. 
that is kind of like a spinal cord of data for AMS. Yeah. So if you just go out there willy-nilly with your scissors and start hacking at it, you could uh, end the EVAs really quickly if you damage that, that <laughs> cable. Cut zip ties and yeah, only zip only ties. Only zip ties. So yeah, we had some, the cool features of that zip tie uh -huh. cutter is that it uh, has that foot that slips underneath that zip tie and protects that ribbon cable. What other are new tools can we look forward to seeing being used? I really like the clean cutter. We kind of talked mm -hmm. about that earlier, that it's kind of a combination of various features you find in the industry. So if you ever just cut a tube, whether it's PVC or a piece of copper or stainless steel tube, a brake line, you usually have a tool where you make one revolution, you tighten it, you make one revolution, you tighten it, and you go through that mm -hmm. process until you finally get through your tube. And then usually the tube's been scrunched down, you might have to ream it out or clean it up for you to connect. And so that that process we wanted to simplify that for the crew member and so there were some tools in the industry that ratchet that you only tighten it down once and then the head spins and there were different styles of that so we ended up tailoring what we found in the industry to cut a four millimeter line specifically so you wouldn't just go sell this on a shelf because there's only one specific line diameter with one specific wall thickness that this tube cutter works with but it does it repeatedly every single time leaving behind a clean round tube that is ready for the connection for the repair and so that was one of my favorite things of picking things out from industry and then repackaging it to solve this very unique problem and in this case, these tubes that you're cutting, if I understand it right, is to allow you to remove the old pump or pumps, yep. Uh, yep. which are then going to be replaced with new hardware, but somehow have to be reconnected to those same lines that you just cut. Yeah. Yep. I kind of like to think of this whole thing as kind of like I, uh, my biomedical side comes out a little bit. And oh. it's kind of like you're working on a patient here. So we have to get behind the rib cage. We're going to do a heart transplant, really. So Justin has designed tools to remove that debris shield. That's opening up the rib, rib cage. cutters. Yep, rib cutters. We take off the rib cage. Now we're gonna get down, we have that we have that spinal cord there that we need to move out of the way, that data cable. So mm -hmm. we use a zip tie cutter and we move that out of the way. And then we have these eight stainless steel tubes that are kind of like the veins and arteries. Because some of the supply lines going out to the radiators and some of the return lines. So we have to cut into those, but we have to cut into them and remember which ones they are. Because if you mix up your arteries and your veins, that's a bad day. Yeah. And so... Are they all the same size? They're all the same size, all the same color. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep. So when we cut them, we actually have to label them. So we have a little tool that's that what I was thinking, like, you know, post-it notes of different kinda colors. Like kind of like yeah. post-it notes, but our, our post-it notes, you cut them and you bend them up towards you and you put this little cap on. It's kind of like a finger trap where you can snap it on, but you can't pull it off. Okay. So as they cut one, they label it. They cut one, they label it. Then you end up with all these tubes sticking up out of the worksite with the labels on the end. So now you have to come back and clean cut it with the clean cutter I just described to, to prep that tube so you can connect it. So once we do that, you hang the new heart on the outside of the box. So there's this pump box that, you, that we bring up. This is the repair box. Yeah. So that's the new heart okay. with the new CO2 gas, the new, the new blood, the new lifeblood for the vehicle for AMS. So now you have to connect those veins as you were just mentioning. So we go through and use a, a special swage fitting to actually reconnect those veins to, and then you have to open up the new heart, get the blood flowing, and then close everything back up. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a patient repair. A little surgery. It's a little good surgery. analogy. Yeah. It is. Um, tell me about more tools. What other things are, are, did you guys help create that are gonna get pressed into use here? One of the simplest ones I kind of like is just the puller. So the puller, as I mentioned, the puller, er, Gracie. A pu <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> a brake puller, actually. It was designed off a brake puller. Designed off a brake puller. So we just needed a way. We talked about that reach. We were 18 inches down in this cavity. And they're trying to reach down for these stainless steel tubes and pull them up to their to them to the work site, and they're very close together. And so we looked through, and someone said, hey, what, what about a brake puller? We literally brought in a brake puller from Ace or Home Depot or mm -hmm. somewhere yeah. and had them try it out, and they're like, oh, this actually works pretty good. So we had to fly to fight and change materials, but it's literally a metal hook with a bend on the end, and it's, it's simple, but it does the job. And it's easier to make something simple than it is to make something complicated. Yep. Yeah. Others, other, other tools that are your favorites? Favorites? No, we no. have we have more least favorites. <laughs> we love all of our tools. Pat, I could probably give no, you not a, even a little. No. I could probably give yes, you an Justin. example. Um, so we have something called a capture cage that that we developed. And uh, mm -hmm. sorry again, uh, go back to Hubble, but uh, we Don't had apologize. something called a um, good a, work. a fastener capture plate. So we had uh, a repair in Hubble, and it had uh, over a hundred screws on it, and we didn't want to risk losing these hundred screws. So what we basically did is put it. A large cover on top of these and release the little screws and they would float around in these little pockets uh, so we call it the fastener capture plate so you release it the screw would flow around this little pocket but it could not get out yet how you release it was a bit that went through a little hole so the bit can go in but the screw could not go out the hole and then we removed that entire thing hmm. so what we did for AMS is we have three difficult screws um, in the IPA area which is a three area designated for three fasteners that we need to remove. We made little tiny fastener capture plates, basically a five-sided box. When you install it, when you install it against the cover, that becomes your six side. So it's an entrapped box. A screw uh, driver would reach in there, release the screw, and both the washer and the screw would float around in the cage, and then you would remove the cover. Wow. Nice. I think I have one more. So the, yeah. we have a tool board. So when you when you're doing a repair at your house, you you have a bunch of tools. You set them down next to you. Well, we can't set anything down next no. to us. We've got a second crew member who will be helping hand things back and forth, but he's only got so many hands as well. So one of the things we made was a tool board. It's Think of it as the pegboard in your garage. It's got places for them to take some of the tools that they use regularly and put it on the board and take out something new. And then when they're done with that one, they can put it back. So it holds four or five different tools so they can go back and forth regularly without having to dig through a bag and untangle things. Yeah, and, and presumably back. the things that they are using most frequently at any particular point so that they're handy. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you, and is this the, the tool suite that you mentioned in a, mm -hmm. in a note that you sent me before we got here? Yeah, so everything yeah. together becomes this, this new AMS tool suite. This is such a specialized set of repairs that most of this hardware won't be able to be used for other tasks. We're, we're already looking at the zip tie cutter. We're actually working right now to close up a certification to allow that to stay on space station and be used on other spacewalks. But um, this tool board is specifically holding a four millimeter clean cutter and there's just not that many four millimeter lines on station. Yeah. So most of the rest of this hardware won't be able to necessarily be used in its current format for other spacewalks. So this suite is really special to AMS and it's, it's mm -hmm. there just for this particular task. In developing these special tools for, for this particular task, as, as we've said, you, you got some inspiration, if not some pra more practical guidance, from uh, developing the tools to repair Hubble Space Telescope, not only to make repairs, but also to change out uh, some of its instruments, things that were intended to do. Um, how, Justin, you did the work on Hubble in developing tools. How, how did this compare? Um, some of the, uh, well, when we replaced uh, large box instruments on Hubble, 
Uh, they their major interface was a 716 double hex hex bolt. I mean, it's very simple. So that's a very standard large power tool with a socket extension with the 716 socket at the end and you drive a bolt you release the instrument and the astronaut would remove it and put a new one in so that's that's pretty straightforward and this is definitely what is uh, still maintained up to ISS today is using that, that type of interface mm -hmm. um, our last servicing mission is where uh, um, I mentioned before is when we actually started performing mini or micro surgery replacing circuit cards that involved turning the astronaut into basically a ground technician removing covers and getting to the circuit board and replace those and everything is sharp all over the place um, so those became quite challenging tasks in themselves um, in aspects of sharp edges uh, creating FOD um, ESD concerns generated during the repair um, and then as difficult as that was it is fun and easy and takes a long time to remove and get down to where you need to, to take the repair but putting it back together actually is the easier part because it's easy and for example when we took apart one of the instruments on Hubble called the uh, STIS we took the radio cover off took over an hour to get that cover off when it came to after the new board was put into it the new cover went on in less than five minutes it simply went on two latches were thrown and it was done didn't and then, have to redo each of those not, little screws. So, so the major reason for that is everything that we build on the ground is going to be launched into space. So it needs to survive the launch environment. So it's vibrated very heavily uh, during launch. And we do testing on the ground to make sure that things are going to survive launch. But now we're doing repair in space, so you not necessarily have to put 100 screws back in. You may only have to put a fraction of that in because there are no large on-orbit loads being put into that box. They're not going to have to go through that same sort of, of Exactly, prices. exactly. So you're really trying to replace a cover. In this, this case, is re restoring the thermal path in order, because this is a radar that we're removing. Uh, restore that thermal path. Didn't need a lot of screws, two latches, and we're done. As a public service, we'll put STIS in the transcript. It's Space Telescope the Imaging Spectrograph. OK, well, I won't have to. Uh, and FOD <laughs> is Foreign Object Debris. Yes. I Things that are floating around. Um, Heather, you said earlier that you had worked in, uh, in shuttle times. Uh, makes it sound like it's 100 years ago. Uh, <laughs> it feels like um, it. <laughs> developing tools. And I, I think that was for the, the tile repairs that we had to do after the loss of Columbia. There were being developed to figure out how to make those kind of repairs in the future if it had, if it came to that point mm -hmm. again. It, did that work compare to what you were doing here? In the, they're very challenging and it's a very specialized set of tools. We weren't just going to find something on the shelf that could fix that. We were um, repairing both the the RCC, the, the leading edge of the wing, which is where uh, mm -hmm. Columbia's main damage was, and and the tiles themselves, you're in a, a very challaging workspace. For the shuttle, you, you weren't allowed to touch anything, because while you were trying to repair this damage, didn't you didn't want to do damage else. to anything else. Um, you were trying to you know stay back away. You didn't have any handrails. Um, so it, very similar from that perspective, um, we, we still, this workspace, since it wasn't meant to be a workspace, once we take this debris shield off, there are lots of areas behind the debris shield that we're not tested to make sure that they're not sharp. We want, we're very careful to make sure that we're not going to do anything to cut the gloves of the spacesuit or any other part of the spacesuit. Right. So before we button any piece of hardware up, before we, we, we launch it, we test it to make sure there are no sharp edges. And if there are, we file those down and make them safe. Well, once we pull this cover off, everything behind that hasn't been tested for that. So we've done a lot of work to find out where we might still have some areas that might be sharp. So 
those do exist back there and that's one of the reasons why we want this crew to be very trained so that they are careful and are aware of where those sharp edges are without us having to constantly remind them hey don't touch that don't touch mm -hmm. that don't touch that right so um they can't touch much while they're in there either they don't have any handrails um, neither of those tasks were trivial and you people are very passionate about both tasks for different reasons so you get into strong personalities and oh, and, really? and difficult <laughs> um some, some difficult conversations as you tr try to weigh the options out and make sure everybody's getting uh, what they want while everybody's still being safe yeah. drew did you have experience before working on ams tools that that helped you in doing this task? Yeah, I did. Um, I would say this was a, obviously a very new challenge for me. As I mentioned earlier, I had um, kind of spent a lot of time in the development world where it's kind of the quick and easy solutions we look for. We're trying to make trainers on a shoestring budget to do some uh, some tasks with, with crew members for future missions, like looking way in the future. And so it was really neat to kind of bring that mindset of the quick and easy solution to this really complicated challenge and say, hey, what about this? Why does it need to be that complicated? Do we really need to do that? And so that yeah. I really enjoyed that of trying to look at it kind of from a different perspective of coming in with very little knowledge and actually having the opportunity to uh, a chance to speak up about that stuff instead of just kind of learning the learning the old way. It was hey, mm -hmm. we have this problem. Let's see how we, how we can solve it a different way and coming together and finding the middle ground. Yeah. Finding the middle ground. Let's not just because that's the way we've always done it. Yep. Sort of thing. You've developed all these great tools. Did you have any problems in getting them to the work site? Getting them to space? Well, we've, uh, we some of the hardware is rather large. I mean, the new box that they're launching is, oh, is that 400 pounds? Like so that. that I think that can fit in one vehicle that we have right now. Yeah. Um, some of our handrails are rather large. So, and we also wanted to get most of these up in a fairly uh, short period of time prior to the EVAs, because we don't want them sitting on station taking up space for a year prior to the space right. that there is. is because you had it all important. ready to go a year ago? No, no not no. even a little. <laughs> <laughs> but as we get closer to the date where we have the crew that we want um, ready to go, we definitely had to look, we had to talk with our logistics people who were in charge of weighing what goes up and what doesn't and making sure that we had the hardware ready on the day they needed it because most of the time it, it was a bit of a challenge to get it ready by that day to get it up on this specific vehicle because there wasn't necessarily going to be a second shot to get it up there right. and still have the trained crew use it. Yeah, and I think for those that keep a close eye on space launches, some of our hardware was on HTV that had a little bit of a launch pad fire and a right. delay. So some of our hardware was on there, and we had a few nail biters of uh, when that got delayed of when that was going to uh, launch. But thankfully, it successfully made it to the station and delivered us, uh, I think, nearly the last. So we got one more launch. One more. One more launch. NG-12 should be the last of the hardware. All right. Um, I am looking forward a lot to uh, seeing these spacewalks and see how all your work uh, turns out. And I'd be, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that it's not just the three of us working on this by any means. There is a small army behind us that is... And behind oh, them, there's a bigger army. Exactly. <laughs> so that it's, uh, you know, we're, we're the people that get to kind of go talk to people about what the team has done, but we're by no means the, the only people doing work on this side. It's been, it's been a huge effort um, a, across agencies. Uh, within the, within the NASA agency, Goddard and a number of other places. Mm -hmm. So it's Pat. I want to mention that uh, Drew touched on the two training facilities, the Argos and the MBL. Right. So these are fantastic assets that that we leverage on in order to train crew 
I also like to say it also is a tremendous that it also trains us as well. Mm -hmm. So um, both at Argos, all three of us participate in that, and for divers, um, Heather and I both dive in the MBL. So we have spent tens, tens of hours watching different crews do the repair, such that I feel very prepared that when the mission is being conducted and we have camera view of what they're doing, we know where they are, we know we've seen this, and we know if something's going off nominal and how to respond to that with the team. Yeah, and we're actually right now, while we lead up to these EVAs, which will hopefully happen here shortly, um, we're doing simulations of those EVAs. So somebody has gone through and, and planned out the EVA and they, they throw little, little snafus in there uh, for us, and then we have to figure out what we can do, what we can do real time to get the crew to get back on track and make sure that they're safe, but that we still maintain the EVA. Sim soup, my old friend. Yes, so we've been <laughs> running through Sims and, and, and we'll say enjoying that. Yeah, uh -huh. it's great. Um, Heather Bergman, Justin Cassidy, Drew Hood, thank you very much for sharing the story. Look forward to see it all go well. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for having us. At last report, there would be four spacewalks done to complete the repairs to the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. First, to remove shields to gain access to the worksite. A second, to cut stainless steel tubing to remove old pumps and then put the AMS on temporary life support until the third spacewalk, which will be to install the system of new pumps and connect that tubing. And then fourth, to verify that there aren't any leaks at the installation site make any repairs if they're needed, and then reinstall the shielding and the insulation to get AMS back to the business of searching for evidence of the origins of the universe. You'll be able to follow along with all of the spacewalks on NASA TV and online at nasa.gov. Also, there's a very interesting story about the history of the development and the deployment of the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, and we didn't even begin to get into that in these episodes. But you can. The story is called AMS, The Fight for Flight, and you can access it on nasa.gov and other online sites. I'll remind you that you can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov, and you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at all the NASA JSC accounts. When you go to those accounts, use the hashtag AskNASA to submit a question or suggest a topic for us. Make sure to indicate that it's for Houston. We have a podcast. You can find the full catalog of all of our episodes by going to nasa.gov podcasts and scrolling to our name. You can also find all the other exciting NASA podcasts right there at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov podcasts. Very convenient. This episode was recorded on October 23, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Beth Weisinger, Gary Jordan, Nora Moran, and Belinda Polito for their help with the production, to Rachel Barry and Aaron Anthony and the International Space Station Program Science Office team, and to our guests, Heather Bergman, Drew Hood, and Justin Cassidy for explaining it all. We'll be back next week. <laughs>